morning. We always do that just to sync up other campuses and hello to Plano and Frisco. And um, I was encouraged to get an email uh, or text actually this morning from our friends in Fort Worth. They uh, are starting their own series for the very first time, that healthy, functioning group of fully devoted followers of Christ with godly elders, um, a fully paid for facility through the generosity of this body and the labor and contribution of all the folks over in Fort Worth, contributions of those in Fort Worth. So it's just amazing. They are um, studying God's word and thriving as God's people over there. And it's just really, really encouraging. Um, and I'm encouraged to be with you all here. There is uh, plenty of room to be here and be socially distanced in the midst of uh, this day and age that we're in. We know that there were some folks in some overflow rooms, our first service. And so we are thrilled that um, you guys are coming. But those of you that are, are not ready to come here yet, we totally respect that and are glad to keep serving you. But just know that there's lots of space to come here and um, find yourself as distant as anybody who thinks they know what's wise <laughs> should say you need to be, to be safe. And, um, but meanwhile, we know we're safe when we pay attention to and uh, radically follow the word of God, or at least that's the conviction of those of us here who, who believe. And we're so glad there's some of you joining us who are trying to figure out if you should believe in our God. And so with all the craziness and uncertainty that's in the world, the one thing I am certain of uh, is that if we pray, our hearts will be more set up to receive what it is that we're going to try and do in these next few moments together. So um, let's pray. Father, would you just help us um, to love one another and to um, know what true love is? It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not a sense. It is who you are. You've told us in your word that God is love. And we see in history that the God who claims to be love showed that in demonstrating his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can study about that this morning and be reminded of what is true so that our hearts can be restored back to a place of sanity and clarity in a way that will make us useful to our master. Vessels of honor prepared for every good work. Would you just teach us now? And um, wherever we're at, meet us, reach us, and conform us into the image of your son. We thank you for his sacrifice, which makes that restoration with you possible. Don't let us miss that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the series that we're in, and we'll be in it for several weeks, really through Labor Day, is called Retold. And what we're doing is we're taking true stories, some history. You need to know that everything that we're looking at is not following cleverly devised tales. That's what Peter said when he wrote uh, his letter to his friends. He said, listen, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales, but, but words that God gave to us, um, uh, eyewitness accounts of history have been preserved by us and made sure by God and his sovereignty and his will that they could be um, both produced and preserved and proclaimed in a way that will accomplish his purposes, which if there is a God, you have to believe he can do every one of those things. And he claims that he has. And he has proven this from him because he laced it with prophecy and he showed its truth with power through the transformation that happens to those who believe that God has been working in the context of history. So we are looking at true stories from history. And the true stories that we're looking at this week, which is a combination of 
um, of two weeks is the true story of the beginning of the church. People that are called out of his darkness into his marvelous light. And so we're going to be in Acts 2 this morning. You might want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. I'll tell you, this week when I was um, just on my own, spending some time with the Lord, I was in the middle of this particular historical record, which is what the book of Acts is. It is an eyewitness account from history of actual events. And, um, you know, sometimes people say this about your Bible, like, well, gosh, you know, um, why don't we have um, eyewitness accounts and not just the Bible? Well, the Bible is an eyewitness account in many places. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. It's why we don't have a problem with what some people think are conflicting testimonies. All right? Um, For instance, one of the eyewitnesses talked about one angel being there at the resurrection. Another one said two. one time uh, you'll find that there were two blind men. Another eyewitness will say there was one. And so you need to understand that selection is not contradiction. One of the reasons we know that these are reliable eyewitness accounts is because they're not identical. When you are a investigator or detective and you have a bunch of eyewitnesses that all say the exact same thing without any variance, then you go, this seems like a rehearsed story and not a true sharing of a person's perspective. By the way, um, if I um, was with somebody this afternoon and uh, I I mentioned that, hey, Bo and I were together this morning. And then a little bit later I said, hey, I was with um, 2,000 people this morning. You might go, hey, that's a contradiction. And I would say, well, yeah, the reason I mentioned that I was with Bo this morning when I was talking to you is because the person I was talking to you know, uh, knew Bo, and so I was emphasizing the fact that I was with Bo, but it was also true when I was with Bo, I was with 2,000, you know, other people and one of the services. That doesn't contradict. That's just me selecting a specific aspect of the story because of the audience that I'm speaking with. And you see that kind of thing all through your, your, your synoptic gospels. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. Synoptic, they're called synoptic gospels because it means to see with, okay? That's literally what the word means. John's a little bit different. It, 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 while it um, shares stories from scripture, it shares it with a thematic perspective and isn't at all concerned um, in the same way the other gospels are with recording the life of Christ. But Luke wrote the gospel, not, um, wrote the book of Acts. And when I was reading in Acts 11 and 12 this week, I got to the place in the book of Acts where Herod uh, Agrippa was, um, had died in Caesarea, uh, by the sea. And I've been there. I've been in the actual um, Colosseum that he died in, or at least was stricken with, that he died a few days later. And I've taught Acts 12 in that very location. And as I was reading it again this week, I wanted to go back in history and um, get another eyewitness account or another telling of that same story. And I went and I read the Jewish historian Josephus, the antiquities. that that he wrote, which is a record, again, from another person that lived during the time of Christ, lived during the time um, just after the crucifixion, where he was writing the history of the Jews, history of Israel. And you can see him illumine and add details to the story because these are not cleverly devised tales. It's history. The Bible is a living book where God has told us that this is him working in the middle of lives. And it's, if you'll pay attention to it, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce, the scripture says, between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and it will, it will bring forth and do its work in you if you'll just let it. And I will just offer this to you. If you're here this morning, you should just say, okay, God, if you're there and if there's something you want me to hear today, don't let my hard heart miss it. Because I'm gonna share with you what the early church did, and there's gonna be relevance for you even if you're not a part of the church, and there's also gonna be relevance for you if you are already somebody who has come to understand the story that the church has supposed to have been telling for 2,000 years. Acts chapter two. Let's just do a little bit of reading because you're about to find out that um, this Jesus that had told individuals that they had um, a specific purpose to exist. Remember last week, this was the five things I said in Acts one through eight were there. There's a purpose, it says Jesus gave them orders. So there was a purpose to proclaim truths about the kingdom of God, that um, they were going to be a people that accomplished this together, that were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, that had been given a promise that was gonna come and that promise was gonna give them power and they were gonna be enabled to accomplish everything that God had given them to accomplish if they just paid attention to him. The Bible is a revelation from a sovereign eternal God to a finite world that we might be transformed. We're not supposed to go and will ourselves to obedience. We're supposed to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him. And then God will make our path straight. And God's word is what gives us the power to not be like the world, but to live in a way that we are aliens and strangers of people who don't walk in the darkness of others, but live with a light that shines before men that others will see our good life and give glory to our Father in heaven. That's the goal of the church. And this is the beginning of what the church did as soon as the power came to them. Now, let me just say this. This, what I'm about to read, is a one-time historical event where God shows up and, and lets them know, hey, there's something new happening now. This thing I said was going to happen is happening now. And God almost always does that whenever he's beginning a new work. So, um, as an example, early on uh, in Moses' ministry, God was gonna do a new work. He was gonna reveal himself to his people Israel um, by taking them out of a land where they were slaves and setting them free in a place of promise. And so when he began that new work, there was accompanying signs and wonders to let people know, hey, this is God who is doing this. And let there be no mistake, it's God. A little bit later with the prophets, you see the exact same thing. You see um, some, um, some events happen that everybody kind of goes, this is not normal. God's giving us signs that we might pay attention and we can see that this is not just some men's with delusions of grandeur, but this is actually God at work. You see it again when Jesus comes, that he said, I do these signs for you, not so that you would fall in love with what I'm doing, but you would come to know who I am. Because when you know who I am, that's what will set you free. Not when you're somehow um, impressed or mystified by these things you can't explain. 
these things you can't explain is because something unexplainably good is here. And you're about to see the same thing happen in the beginning of the church. Okay? Acts 2. Here we go. So uh, this power had come upon them. The, 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 um, the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on the church. And whenever there is a new power um, coming, God wants them to not miss it. And so you're going to find out it came with a mighty rushing wind. All right? Almost uh, a tornadic, if you will, presence that nobody could miss that leveled everything down to its foundation and now we were gonna rebuild it and the world was gonna know something powerful is here. Acts two, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, who? People who had believed in Jesus. Most people who um, speculate, scholars would say, we're talking about 120 roughly people, not very many folks. And God was about to work in that 120 folks to change the world. And suddenly, while they were there waiting for the Holy Spirit to come so that the Holy Spirit would then give them the ability, being reunited to God, to live in a way that the world would acknowledge is different, like they were alien and strangers, citizens of a different kingdom, was coming to them. They were waiting for that power. This was the event when it came. It says, there appeared to them... um, Tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Now it's interesting that the, the tongues as of fire, I made mention of this briefly last week, was there was something powerful that came into the room. They could hear it, probably experience it. There was something visible that sat on top of them. I think it was the Shekinah glory. And what I mean by the Shekinah glory is the same thing that led Israel out of the wilderness um, you know, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night there was, um, that was in the presence of God's people. It was probably the exact same glory that Moses reckoned to be um, a bush that burned and was not consumed. It was a manifestation of the glory in the presence of God, all right, that came upon each and every single one of them because they were reconciled and had peace with God. Why? because that which had caused enmity between man and God had been bridged by God's provision. Okay, I'll say this a couple of times today. God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, full of grace and truth. He shows loving kindness to thousands of generations, but by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished. And God is going to be just, but he also wanted to in his kindness in love, justify those that acknowledge that they deserved judgment. And so what he did is he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on their behalf, that they might become the righteousness of God in him. And these individuals understood who Jesus was, understood why Jesus came, understood that no one took Jesus' life for him, but he laid it down and he was gonna take it back up again because he was gonna pay the wages of sin And then having paid the wages of sin, was going to offer life to all who would look to him as a gracious, powerful, redeeming God. And when you're reconciled to God, then the spirit of God, which men say, I don't need, I'll go my own way. God's word's not true. His his character isn't good and disobeying him is not gonna cost me. That's always the first and primary sin of men and every other sin flows out of that. 
that God would bring them back into relationship with him when they would say, oh my gosh, look at the goodness of God. Even though we say we don't love him, say we don't need him, and we go our own way and try and find life everywhere we can in every pursuit that is known to man, we're always ending up with brokenness and chaos and war and despair. And finally, in our brokenness, we cry out, God, is there any other way? And he's like, I am the way. And we come to our senses like the prodigal son who lives in a foreign land and is longing to eat the food of pigs. And we remember that there's a gracious father that we've left. And we turn and we come and we find that he is ready to run to us and to rejoice that we have been restored. When we're restored to God, the Father, the, the, the Spirit of God, the truth of God, the goodness of God, we're changed. We're, we're the same individual we were, but now we don't hate Dad. We don't try and avoid the old man. We don't appease the old man. We're like, teach me your ways. Because I've pursued my own ways. I've squandered my life, life on loose living and false friends. And I want to now live with life indeed. And so that's exactly our story. That's what the story is of these 120 people. And when the glory of God is brought down on them and they have a right understanding of God, they then will listen to God and his spirit will enable them and empower them to honor him. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues. The word there is glossa, or um, G-L-O-S-S-A. It's where we get the English word glossary. They began to speak with words that made up languages that they previously did not know. I'm going to show you what languages they spoke here. There's two words that are going to be used in the book of Acts that also show up later in 1 Corinthians when the gift of tongues is talked about again. And it's the exact same words. It's glossa and dialectos. We get the word glossary, which is basically a dictionary of words that are our language, and dialectos, which is the specific tongue or language that people use that is made up of a glossary. This is not some um, loose, uh, multiple syllabic, uh, syllabic um, babble, literally, that makes no sense to somebody. These were known languages. Watch who they were known to. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And when the Spirit gives you utterance, what happens is you speak things that, that um, fulfill the proclamation uh, and the purpose that you're here for, which is to proclaim the kingdom of God and the coming king, and how you can be reconciled to him, and what's been happening, what is happening, and what's about to happen. Now, bottom line, I'll say this, in your New Testament, the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit having control of you is not that you speak in a language you don't understand, it's that you control the tongue that you have. Okay, that's James 3, that a man calls himself religious, but he can't even control his tongue. You ought to be a person who there is such a tornadic transformation in them that you rebuild your life, that you speak now to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and not with malice and envy and rancor. It ought to change your tongue. Your tongue that was self-protective and defensive ought to become humble and gracious 
and self-aware. It won't be perfect because you're not home yet, but it ought to acknowledge every time it comes to its senses and remembers its imperfection. All right, I digress, but watch this. It says this, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together, right? I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna run, you're gonna drive to see what just happened where that activity, that, that loud sound and, and um, transformation was. It says they came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own dialect. Dialectos is the Greek word. What dialects? Okay, um, I'll show you in a second. It says they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't these guys from up there by the Sea of Galilee? We know they speak Aramaic. Maybe a few of them know Greek. There might be a few other little words, like, you know, I can hack my way around Mexico with five or six sayings, but I'm not going to be able to give a message that has any coherence to it in another tongue. I just don't have that um, ability. Now, I think God could give it to me anytime he wanted. I think I could speak in English and he could let you hear it in another language. That's not what's happening here. It's guys who don't know another language who all of a sudden have a glossary they previously didn't have and therefore are speaking in a language they didn't have. What languages? Verse 8, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Do you see that? A spirit, a spiritual tongue speaks about the mighty deeds of God. If God wanted you to, he could give you the gift of tongues. Today, he just wants you to download Google Translate and that'll work, all right? Um, you know, do what I do. I just speak into that and go, listen, I don't speak your language very well, but I do know this. This is a language the all, whole world should know. Christ died for you and we're all sinners and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard that before? Let him read it. Okay, it's a miracle that that can happen. Now, God doesn't need Google Translate because he can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And what he was doing right now, okay, is, um, you know, by the way, I'll just throw this in. First service didn't get this. I'll just give it to you. The words that are used when the gift of tongues is talking about in 1 Corinthians, specifically 12 through 14, go back to Isaiah chapter 29. In Isaiah 29, when you hear a foreign tongue spoken in your land, it's a sign of judgment. In other words, if all of a sudden all uh, our announcements are going to have Al, Al, Al Jazeera Arabic, right? If CNN and, and uh, CBS and Fox are gone and everything is spoken to us in Arabic, we're going to be like, okay, something happened in America, we're now we're under a different law, not because Arabic is speaking, but let's just say it's a Sharia law, where we're no longer under our democratic uh, constitutional law. We're going to go, judgment has fallen to our country. In Isaiah 29, he says, you guys want to say to me, meaning like God, blah, 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 blah. When God speaks, he goes, I will bring blah, 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 blah to you. 
right? When I hear Arabic, it's a beautiful language. It just is blah, 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 blah to me. It may as well be Charlie Brown's teacher trying to get a message to me. It makes no sense, okay? And so it's what, where the word Babel comes from. Um, it's like nonsensical language. And if you ever hear somebody who um, thinks they're speaking in the gift of tongues, it's Babel. There's, by the way, a Greek word for that. It's glossolalia, which means not a glossary of any language. It's just a bunch of syllables thrown together that really don't mean anything. But I believe it's a mistake to teach people, well, God understands it and it's a heavenly language. No, no. That's just not what the scriptures teach. And there's lots of teaching about that here at Watermark. What I would tell you is it was a source of judgment to the Jews that all of a sudden, because God wanted the Jews to be a kingdom of priests, that they would go out into the world and they would love Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. And they would declare to them the God of, Mo, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because they didn't do it in their tongue and they didn't do it as God's people, he said, I'm going to let other tongues proclaim the glory of God. And so today around the world, it isn't just the Hebrew tongue that talks about the covenant keeping God. It's the English tongue. It's the Chinese tongue. It's the Arabic tongue. It's the Farsi tongue. It's the, and I could just name every tongue on earth except for maybe a few unreached people groups that radically um, are right now being um, purposed to be translated and for a language and an alphabet to be built so that every tongue can know who God is. So all these people heard um, about what uh, God had done. And this is basically what they heard. But some were mocking and they were saying, no, no, these guys are drunk. That's why we can't make sense of what they're saying, right? They got a bunch of Boone's Farm strawberry wine here. And, um, and Peter taking his stand and he says, no, that's not the case. Verse 15, he goes, it's only the third hour of the day. This is an old miss. People aren't drunk by nine o'clock, all right? And so this is just a work of God. And, uh, and so we're... we're uh, what you're seeing here, it sounds like Babel to you, but it makes sense to the Phrygian and the guy from Egypt. And this is what they're hearing. And so I think Peter to the Hebrews says this, this is what's going on. This is what the prophet Joel spoke about, which is that there would be a reuniting of sinful men and God, and they would speak forth truths, and the whole world would know who God is. And then he goes on a little bit later and he quotes not from Joel, but from the, the psalmist. And he says, they're telling about the work of God accomplished through this Jesus, who then he goes on to say, whom you rejected and crucified. That you participated with the Romans to have him nailed to a cross. And that one you nailed to a cross was the Messiah that God promised you, the deliverer of your people. Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace, you killed him. You said, crucify him. Not just Jews, Jews and Romans. The world, except for maybe about 120 people, said, we want nothing to do with him. Now, just for a second, let me just ask you guys a question. Forget this moment in history. If I told you 
this story and you were just gonna believe it was true. There is a God, he's all powerful. Everybody's gonna stand before him and give an account. He doesn't hate you, but you don't know him. And in the way you live in indifference to him, you are telling him you don't care about him. And because he's gracious, he doesn't consume you completely right now, but he gives you enough light and enough evidence and even some people who specifically talk about him so that you can know him. And in fact, he was here with you in the room and you all said, we're bored with him, kill him because he's annoying us. And you all voted to kill him. And the one that you killed was your ticket to forgiveness and life indeed. What would you do if I told you that story and that story was true? You would say, well, that was a huge mistake. We didn't know. Or, um, you know, we had no idea that that's who that was. Or we were hardened in our understanding. Or are we screwed forever? What must we do? Is there any chance that we could fix that? Right? If that story was true, and I told you there was no way to be forgiven and no way to be rescued from eternal damnation except to do something, wouldn't you want to know at that point what you should do? Well, that's exactly what those people decided in that moment. Because they saw not just the ongoing story of this one that the world turns against whose tomb was empty. And the Romans, who were professional executors, who said, uh, yeah, the disciples, who by the way were scared to run away from a little servant girl, all of a sudden got their moxie up and went and took on a Roman cohort of 600 men, beat them up in the middle of the night and stole the body and now are hiding them. And, um, and, and 600 men all around the nation have seen him and these people who were normally in fear are now out in public preaching about him and there's been a massive transformation in their life and there was a mighty rushing wind and the Romans have not produced a body. Maybe we did make a terrible mistake. And so you're gonna to come to this great section in chapter two, verse 37. And this great section just says this. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? How are we going to fix this mess? It's exactly, if you're here and you're not certain that you can be forgiven by God, you should be going, well, Todd, what do I do? What do now, you might reject this idea. You might think it's all a myth. You might think this is a cleverly devised tale. And I would just tell you, have you done your work? Have you gone back and looked in history? Have you checked the evidence for the resurrection? Are you just kind of um, marrying and, and, and giving in marriage and eating and drinking because you don't think there's a coming flood while the ark of hope that is the gospel is being built right here around you and because you count God's slowness as his indifference to your sin, you don't think there's ever going to be a flood again. You don't think you need to find rest in an instrument of wood that will lift you up from judgment through some herald of righteousness that tells you to come all who you want mercy. I would tell you, you better do your work. And you better be really cocksure that this is just a joke. And I would offer to you there is evidence to suggest it's the most reliable fact in history. And you should say, what shall I do? Now, I'm just going to acknowledge because what I'm about to teach, the church has not done effectively 
for 2,000 years in a lot of places. Most of you are like, well, God can't be who he says he was because, Todd, I don't see transformed lives. I don't see the Shekinah glory falling on anybody. I don't see good works. I see people in the church look just like people who aren't in the church. I don't see transformation and glory. So I'm not going to give glory to their father who's in heaven. And to the church, I would say, do you understand that? I was talking to a friend who's in the room with me right now who, who comes from a family who was part of a race of people, Jewish people, that used to be mocked and called awful names by Christians. And they go, I'll never believe that Christ was the Messiah because his people hate me. Which Christians, Christians who hate Jews, it just makes no sense. Jesus wept over the fact that his people reject, rejected him. There are a lot of um, individuals that hate the church because the church twisted and distorted the Bible to justify slavery and oppression of people groups. It's why Liberia, which is a place that a bunch of freed slaves in America went to in Africa to experience liberation, went and they've rejected Christianity and it's a Muslim place because the Christians, the Christian America did what it did to their tribe of people. And church, when you don't do what the Father says you should do, you are in the way of grace. And so that's why this text matters so much. They said, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, this is what you should do. You should repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. I'll just take just a second of Acts and just do this for you guys. Um, I love that where Jesus uh, was at one point, the exact same question was asked of him in John chapter 6. Jesus had been doing some of the signs that were to set him apart and make people go, what are these signs pointing towards? And they were pointing to the fact that he was creator God. And in John chapter 6, there were people that loved the signs. People always love magic tricks. They always love illusions. Jesus said, this is no illusion. This is what only God can do. And he says to them, but truly I say to you, you seek me not because you see signs, but because you like the signs and were entertained by the signs. It fed your flesh, in this case, because I gave you food to eat, but, but this food is going to um, perish. You need everlasting food and you need to eat of me. I'm the bread of life. It's one of Jesus' favorite metaphors. When he was in John chapter 4, he was by a woman at the well and that woman at the well you know, said, do you want me to get you a drink? And he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink and you would drink of it and it would be, uh, you would never thirst again. And she goes, you don't have a bucket to draw the water from. He goes, that's because I'm not talking about drawing from that well. I'm talking about giving you the spirit of life. He said, I don't need to go into an oven and bake you food that will make you never hunger again. God has sent manna from heaven. And so he says in verse 27, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which lasts under everlasting life. Ask for the Father, because the Father has put his seal on this bread. And so in verse 28, they then say to him, what shall we do that we would do the works of God? Does that sound familiar? It's Acts 2, 37 and 38. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the number one. If you forget everything else I say this morning, remember this. The work that God wants you to do is to come to your senses and believe that God is good and loving and right and true 
And by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished. And so he has poured out his wrath on himself. He has gone to the cross for your sin, that you might see his mercy and his grace, that you would acknowledge your need for it and believe that Jesus is the means through which men can be forgiven. And then you, as evidence that you believe that Jesus is who he is, you begin to walk with him. And you let him inform your tongue and inform your life and inform your marriage and inform the way you handle money and inform the way you handle despair and inform the way you handle broken relationships and inform everything about your life like a tornado has come and wiped out everything that stood before and there's a new foundation now being built on. It's the teaching of the law and the prophets. That should be your life. And so right here, Peter said, you should repent and you should identify with Jesus. You should be baptized and just go, hey, uh, I, I want the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to be the means through which I am forgiven. And my standing before God is Christ for me. And because Christ gave himself for me, I will now live for him. And the way I live for him is not going to be the means that, that I am saved, but it is evidence that I believe that Christ is where life is because he's gonna be my Lord and my savior. And the fact that I live this way is evidence that I've done the one thing that men need to do, which is repent. Guys that say Jesus is Lord and Jesus died for the world and then keep living the exact same way, those people, the Bible says, don't know the Lord. They know the story. They have a said faith, but not a saving faith. They have a dead faith. You are saved by grace through faith alone, and the faith which saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by you doing what you said you were going to do. I say it a lot. People say what they think, but they do what they believe. The problem is the world doesn't think there is a God because the world doesn't live. The world doesn't see people who say they know God live like there's a God that they know. And so they go, cleverly devised tales. There's no transforming power. There's no promise. There's no people of God because there is no God. And so church, what you're gonna see right now is this is what the church should do in 42 through 47. And if we do this, the world will see our good works and they will join us in the hope that defines us. All right? So um, I like the quote. We just lost a guy by the name of J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer just died recently. And J.I. Packer said, there are ministers who speak of repentance, uh, who never speak of repentance or self-denial. And naturally, they are very popular. In America today, you're gonna find lots of guys who stand in a pulpit and they never do what I did, which is to say, repent ye sinners. And the sin that you're to repent of, by the way, is not just your homosexuality or your heterosexual perversion or your pornography or your um, using abortion as a means of birth control or your uh, materialism or your love of self or your gossip or your envy or your greed or your racism or your petty pride. Those are all symptoms of one thing. And the only sin that will cast a man into hell forever is the sin that says God is not good. Therefore, his word's not true. And so who cares if we disobey him? There is no God. I'm not accountable to him. I will go my own way. I need him not. 
that's the sin you need to repent of. And you need to say, I, I, Lord, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And if you're there, show me. And if the cross is real, show me. The resurrection happened, show me. Let me believe. You are God and you are good and I am man and I am a liar. I am deceitful. The good that I know that I should do, I don't do because sin is in me and it deserves judgment from a holy God. Thank you that you love me and came to rescue me. Let me walk with you. The old then is gone and new has come. There's a new spirit here. It's not the spirit of rebellion. It's the spirit of life. It's the spirit of knowing who God is. And then you yield to that spirit and walk according to his ways. Right? See, we're not here, church, punching a ticket. We're not here to tell God, I did what you wanted me to do. What God wants you to do is acknowledge that apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you're destined for hell. That he's rescued you, that he loves you. He's a good father, so you pay attention to his words. There are ministers that will never call you to repent. Never say anything about self-denial. They'll say it's your best life now and a thousand other things. Tips and techniques, health, wealth, and prosperity if you just cut Jesus into the deal. They're popular, but they are false prophets. This is what the church does. Number one, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Look, guys, we don't read our Bible because we want to learn more facts about God. We don't do it as a religious exercise so that we can tell God that, hey, I did what you wanted me to do today. I took my spiritual vitamin. You're like an individual who just says, I don't want to try and figure this out anymore because when I try to figure it out, I ruined my marriage. I ruined my friendships. I got despairing. I was overwhelmed. I was hopeless. I put my my confidence in, in the White House or this coming election or the past election. Or I, I, whatever the thousand things are that men give themselves to. And you just go, I'm no longer going to do that. I'm going to put my hope in you. And, I, and I, I, I see that you've explained to me why the world is the way that it is. And I'm going to live according to your will and way. And so no longer will I lean on my understanding, but in all my ways I'll acknowledge you. And I believe you'll make my path straight. So you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching the same way that you would devote yourself if I told you that alongside of you the rest of your days, there's going to be a loving father who's going to say, hey, you don't have to figure this out anymore. Just learn what I would do. Trust in me, and I'll give you courage, even if the world tells you you're crazy, why it's the right thing to do, and I'll remind you what's going to happen in the long run with you and with others who believe me and with those who don't believe me, and just trust me. And if you want to know what to do, look to me. And don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but delight yourself in the law of the Lord and delight yourself in this. And everything that you're faced with, I will give you life and light. That's why you read the word of God. Show me more. Lord, what should I do? How do I handle this? They were devoted to this. And, um, and they were careful to pay attention to it. This is why Paul, at the very end of his life, said what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, church, do this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When the world wants the world, the word of God, and when the word, world doesn't want the word of God, give them the word of God. Reprove them, rebuke them, exhort them with great patience. 
Don't relent. Church, how are you doing that? Right? So this idea then, it says they were, they were committed to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This idea that they would come together to do the business of God together, you're going to find out that they did it with one mind in the temple because they were all Christ-centered. So we, Watermark Community Church, can I just tell you this? We're not, community is not an end in and of itself. Community is the fruit of us pursuing Christ together. We are in the business of following Christ together. So if you get together with your community and you talk about whether you should wear a mask or not wear a mask or whether it should be SEC football or not SEC football or the Cowboys should have signed back to a four-year contract and not held out for the five or, or whether or not you should vote for Trump or not vote for Trump or why you should handle, uh, should you be for Black Lives Matter or the organization or not? I mean, all those things, if that's all you're doing and you're not saying no, we're in the business of pursuing Christ. And if you pursue Christ, you will do community, but you can do community without Christ. So the order matters. We pursue Christ and the fruit of us being in the business of following Christ is we find fellows who do it with us. And we pursue each other and we have meals together and our meals talk about how we're doing at following the purpose that we're here. And proclaiming what he's left us here to proclaim. Y'all with me? And... uh, we're going to pray that we do it more. That's the rest of this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the business of being on purpose together as they pursued one another in love. And they prayed that God would teach them more. It says everyone was feeling a sense of awe and many signs and wonders were happening. Can I just tell you this? There's a reason we give you a watermark news every week when you walk in. And I don't have the time to do it, but, but I, I, I just, you know, I went through and the, the Sunday that I, I was teaching through the book of Acts, I mean, you know, week by week, verse by verse, we talked through the entire book of Acts. We, we crammed it into a year and a half. And when we did that, and, and the week that I taught Acts 2, 42 through 47, the watermark news story that week was a story about an individual that was born to an abortion-minded mother who was um, uncared for as a child, who was abused by an adult male neighbor, who was later abused by a female babysitter, who was... Um, later abused by a track coach who, was, who had an abusive stepmother who murdered her biological father, who had eating disorders, abortions, multiple marriages, constantly more relationships, uh, committed adultery, was bound by legalism, performance, and pornography, and on and on and on and on. And by the grace of God was plucked out of that darkness into his marvelous light and, and came to a place where they were of sound mind and were loving and shepherding others. Now, if I told you that story... And read that out of, you go, okay, Ty, that's great that it's in Mark chapter five. But if something like that happened today, I would believe in the power of God. That story happened here. And every week we're telling you this Jesus who's not dead and is alive is the one you should follow. And so I'm just telling you guys, pay attention. The sense of awe is still here because Jesus is still alive and is still working. And they began selling their property, it says the church did this, and possessions, and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. Now look, I'm just going to stick this in here. Right? I'm not even sticking it. It's right here. In this election season, there's an entire party that right now had people fighting for leadership of it that were going to talk to you about socialism and how if we just take more from these people and give it to those people, it'd be a much better country. 
And can I just tell you something? That's not what you see here in Acts chapter 2, verse 45. Okay? It's not what they're talking about here. This, this is not collectivism. This is not governmental control of belongings. This is people who are being controlled by the attitude of Christ, who do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind consider others as more important than themselves, who do not, do not look out merely for their own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, they're not crony capitalists. They're not trying to um, increase their own comfort and their own wealth, and, and, and they weren't immune to the needs of other people. They watched Jesus, who though he was rich for their sake, became poor, so that through his poverty they might become rich, and they go, who else is in the business of life with me that, that, uh, of following the purpose that Christ left us here for that I need to care for right now? This isn't enabling people who don't want to work. This isn't being indifferent to the needs of others. This is finding people that are on mission that don't have what you have, and out of your poverty of want, you meet their abundance of need just like Jesus did for you. Can I just tell you here, there's a lot of different people at Watermark that don't have everything that you have, that are, want to be about the purpose of living, but they're not even sure that they can pay rent this month, buy their kids a backpack for school. And you are not honoring Jesus by being indifferent to their circumstance. And by the way, if you get a country full of Christians who only want to just make, make, make and keep a working class who fund their wealth by making them live at poverty or below, eventually there's gonna be enough of those people that are gonna look for a ruler who will say, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. Since there's no Christians that care, we're gonna go ahead and find a government who will control. And there's gonna be a mass of people in this democracy who go, I don't wanna live in a land with you. May it never be said that people don't want to live in a land with Christ followers. So I'm just going to tell you, if we don't learn to use money the way God wants us to, we're going to live in a land where we don't get to do what we want. So I'd vote well, and I'd live better. Verse 46, you do it every day. You don't just wait till Sunday. You devote yourself to the scripture, you might have one mind. And then let's just close with this in verse 47. Because you do the work of an evangelist, the Lord will add to your number day by day. Do you remember what I said last week? The church has been given orders. And those, that purpose is to proclaim the kingdom of God, that there is a God. His name is Jesus. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. And he is coming quickly, and his reward is with him to recompense men according to their deeds. If you live indifferent to the lives of people that do not know Jesus, if you have not been on purpose in your living this week, telling others about the power of God for salvation, then you are not his church. If you have not been faithfully telling others of what has rescued you from certain judgment, you are not following Jesus. Church, we don't have the option to just kind of go about our merry way and rejoice that we are saved. Saved people talk of their Savior. It is on their lips and the utterance of their tongue is born of the Spirit and it proclaims his excellencies.
How'd you do, church? If you didn't do it, you should repent, church. If you've never embraced Jesus, you should repent, soon to be judged world. So, let's go. Let's follow the goodness of God in all things. Let's be his people. Let's let the history of the kindness of God be made known through us. Amen? I'm not convinced. Amen. Father, may not our loud amens now or our weak ones be the determining factor. May your work in our hearts be that which bears us fruit. We pray that you would use today to get us busy at our little moment in history and that we would be devoted to the teaching of our Heavenly Father and that we would do business with other believers. We'd pursue one another and share meals and encourage each other and be about prayer and there'd be a sense of awe because our lives would be so radically changed that we would not use our blessings um, for ourselves, but we know that we would be blessed that we might be a blessing to others. Father, can we do this with sincerity and gladness of heart day after day with one mind in the temple of this time? May we proclaim to others the glory of who you are and what you have done so that you would add to others the same grace that we have received. We thank you that we are alive today, that we might be on purpose people proclaiming that the promise of the Messiah has come. And as we abide with him through the power of his glory and spirit, be found faithful in this day. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray they'd come. Walk up to the leader in the loft, the leader up there in stage two, to jump online at watermark.org and say, I want to know how to know Jesus, or come and speak with me. And if we know you, I pray we go out in a way that we are never the same. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Go be some history that gives glory to your Father. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you.